you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter. Uh, we're going to begin a, a new study uh, looking through this book uh, together. Uh, I'll be on vacation today from 1 o'clock to about 4.30. So uh, contact someone else if something happens, and then I'll get back to you after the Steelers win. So. So anyways, well, some of you know that our house is in the backyard of our post office. Okay, so let me clarify that. Where we live, our backyard touches the backyard. We don't live in the backyard of our post office. Um, But we walk to the post office to get our mail. We don't have a mailbox. Um, and, and so often when I make the walk to the post office to get my mail, um, and, and this might be your experience as well, you know, you, you just go to the mailbox these days thinking eh, it's either going to be an advertisement. Like, I think Boscov's really wants us to go shop at their store. <laughs> um, or it's a, the dreaded bill. But every once in a while, We get a piece of mail that isn't in those aforementioned categories. We actually get good mail. And what I mean by mail is a card or a note or even the lost art of a handwritten letter. Any of you know what that is? Um, and, and, And most of the time it's it's good mail because it's something cheerful or it's encouraging or just a note to say hello. You all know what good mail is, right? Okay, for some in the room, you may not know what any mail is. We've lost the art of sending a letter. I remember in elementary school, they actually taught us how to write a letter, fill out the envelope, put a stamp on it, and mail it. I don't know if my kids know how to do that. You know, what's strange these days is that They're teaching kids to not even write with a pencil or pen in their hands. Everything is typed. We've lost the art of sending a letter. 25 years ago, email was the primary replacement for letters. We had dial-up modems in America Online. You remember the, you've got mail. Now, most young people don't even write emails. Like they have email addresses, but if you can't send it in a text, why bother? And everything is just these short statements back and forth. Well, good mail, messages that reach us in our need to make us feel loved, to know that we are not alone is good for the soul. And that's what we have here today in First Peter. We have a letter that was sent and received as good mail. It would have come to the recipients in a time in their journey with Jesus that they desperately needed to hear good news because what they were facing was certainly not good news. First Peter is 
good mail because these people needed great encouragement. Now this morning, we're going to look at the first two verses. I know, I know, we're going too fast through this book already. (laughs) But we're going to look through just the opening salutation that Peter gives. Because he sets the stage for where we're headed. And he builds it on some foundational truths that we desperately need to hold fast to. So this morning, we're going to consider who wrote the letter. We're going to consider who received the letter. And we're also going to consider what we know about those that he wrote to. But this letter isn't just for a certain people group at a certain time. Now, Peter wrote this letter almost 2000 years ago. He identifies the the people that he wrote to. But as we read scripture, we're not just saying, oh, that's just for them. It's for us. The things that Peter writes and exhorts us to consider includes our common experience. And God's truth, who is the real writer of this letter, his truth transcends a moment in time. And it applies to all believers everywhere. So today, this good mail day applies to us. So I hope you leave here saying, I got good mail today. Something to lift me up. Something to encourage me. Something to remind me of the goodness and the steadfastness of God. If we're honest, we need good news in the world that we live in. And we talked about good news a few weeks ago in our series on the church. And we talked about capital G, capital N, good news. And we talked about the good news of the gospel. And that is certainly good news. But we also need to be reminded as God's people just how loved we are. And that his promises, his presence, means that God's never going to leave us alone. Some of you might need to be reminded of that this morning. That what you're going through, what you're facing, what is ahead of you, what you're anticipating, God's not going to just meet you there. He's already with you and he's going to walk with you there. So who wrote the letter? That seems like a strange question for me to ask, right? I mean, the book's titled First Peter. The problem is that there was there's been this relatively new pursuit of what is called higher criticism in biblical studies. So for roughly 1,800 years after this letter was written, it was regarded across the board by the church that Peter wrote 1 Peter. But then in the early to mid-1900s, people felt like that they were getting smarter. And as they thought they got smarter, they began looking at the details 
of the original Greek language that this was written in, and they looked at other sources, and they began to question and become skeptical about the things that are written here about the person that wrote them. Examining the text like a scientist, they felt that the Greek that was used to write 1 Peter was far too precise in its quality to be written by a fisherman. Because that was Peter's past experience, right? He was a fisherman when Jesus met him. And Jesus came and called him to be fishers of men. And Jesus changed this man's life for the rest of his life. Until he was martyred for his faith, he became a person sold out for Jesus. And the skeptics look at the, the Greek in this. And, and it, I know enough Greek to get myself in trouble, okay? Like I talk about Greek words and we talk about what they mean and how it applies. But I also know how to use the resources that are out there to help me understand it better. But there are people that can just look at the blank, like Greek text without any help, and they can read it and understand it. And those people, or some of those people said that the Greek that this is written in is too refined for this fisherman who had no education. I mean, Peter would have had a rabbinic education, you know, sat under a rabbi until maybe he was right around 14 years old. But then... Beyond that, he, it's not like he had this formal education that he went off to college and he learned how to write form essays and all those things. And so they began to um, become skeptical. So they think that someone else wrote the letter at least into the uh, second century. But that doesn't make sense. Because if you say that it was written far beyond that, then what you're saying is that this letter would have to be the last letter written in the New Testament. Because we know, church history teaches us, that the last letter that was written was Revelation. And it's not just because it's tucked in to the end of, at, at the end of the New Testament, but that it was written by John in 90 AD while he was stranded on an island suffering for his faith. But there's a clue in the text of Scripture that helps us answer the criticism that Peter could not have written this letter. It's found in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, we see Peter and John. I mean, this is like right at the birth of the church. Peter and John are preaching the gospel. And as they're preaching the gospel, the religious leaders um, hear and see what they're doing. And they question them and they imprison them. And in Acts 4.13, we read, now as they observed, and these are the religious leaders, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, like they're fishermen, right? They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They were amazed. They were amazed at the quality of what they were able to say. And with the passion and with the encouragement and with the truth of the eloquence of their words. These untrained fishermen. And so we can see that when people, no matter what their background is, are connected to Jesus and believe in Jesus... That God can use them to communicate his truth at any level. 
these uneducated and untrained men were amazed. They heard the authority and eloquence of their speech and they, they taught the crowds. And so I, you might be saying, why did you even bring this up? I never doubted that Peter was the writer of, of first Peter. I bring it up because we live in a world of skeptics. We live in a world of people that aren't just looking at the Bible and saying, good for you, but not for me. They're looking at the Bible as a skeptic, wanting to pull it apart to tear out its foundation of authority. And they will say things like, hey, did you ever hear about Peter? Yeah, I don't think he wrote it because of all of this evidence. And I bring it up just to say you can have assurance to know that these things are true and handed down by one who saw Jesus. And there's another indication, right? Well, there's a couple indications to to say that Peter uh, wrote this letter. But we read later on in 1 Peter 5, and we looked at this passage a few weeks ago, when Peter's talking to the elders in 5.1, he says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder in the witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed that Peter was there when Jesus was tried and Peter was far off when Jesus was being crucified and that Peter experienced a transformed, glorified Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, that this couldn't be a guy that came along a hundred years later that wrote about these things, that there's a certain veracity to the claims of what Peter is saying, and we can lean in to what he is writing. Now, we know that where Peter wrote this letter from in chapter five, verse 13, we read and when, um, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't put that one in. Let's go to first Peter five, 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends greetings, and so does my son Mark. And so Peter's writing this letter from Babylon. You might think Babylon of the Old Testament, like Middle Eastern, present day Iraq, but no. In fact, the city of Babylon in the Old Testament was barely in existence by the time Peter wrote this letter. It was a shell of itself. This one mighty, once mighty empire had fallen into dust in the desert. But the New Testament uses the term Babylon to describe another city. And it's the city of Rome. In the book of Revelation, the same word is used to describe the city on the seven hills, which is the city of Rome. And Babylon much like Rome, and Rome, much like Babylon, was called that because they were, it was the known center of the world. Rome was literally the capital of the known world when Peter wrote these words. Peter is in Rome. In fact, church history reminds us and affirms to us that while Peter was in Rome, the Apostle Paul was in Rome too. And they were both known for teaching about the gospel and helping the church in Rome. It's amazing to me that in that city, and it was a great city, you had Peter and Paul and all of the companions that were with them that were all in the same city at one time. 
the clues in the text and, and outside of the text indicate that this letter was likely written in 64 to 67 AD because church history teaches us that Peter died as a martyr in around 67 AD. He was hung upside down on a cross and killed for his faith. And he was hung upside down because the Romans wanted to crucify him. And Peter said that he did not deserve to die the same death as his Lord. And he asked to be crucified upside down. So he's in Rome. He was martyred in Rome. And we can kind of put the clues together that this letter is written pretty late in his life. Now, Peter identifies himself in verse one as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle means messenger. It's a term that we see all throughout the New Testament, but it first shows up in Luke 6.13. And this is Jesus speaking. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. So Luke's writing about what Jesus said. And as he chose the 12, they were called or set apart as his disciples. And he also named them as apostles. Peter and the other 11 were not just given a title, but a commission. It's not just that they had a title that they can say, I'm an apostle. Their apostolic title means that Jesus commissioned them for a purpose, to be a messenger of him. Their lives were focused on declaring the good news of Jesus. The term apostle was used to refer to those men who saw in the church age, or who saw Jesus and declared it in the church age. This term apostle only could apply to those who physically saw Jesus in his ministry. And you might say, well, don't we have a guy named Paul that's also an apostle? Well, he wasn't around here. But we know in the book of Acts that Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus went out into the wilderness with Jesus for three years and he saw him and experienced his presence in ministry. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, not an apostle of the church, not an apostle of what the church wanted him to say. He's a messenger of Jesus, came with good news as they built the foundation of the early church. So we know who wrote the letter. Who did he write it to? To those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. Peter writes this letter to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout. Peter wrote this letter to aliens, Some of you have in your mind a whole different picture of what an alien is. Other translations call or translate the word alien as exiles, foreigners, or strangers. I I believe that the word alien is the best translation based on the truth behind it. The word alien conveys the meaning that Peter's audience were a people were in a place that was not their home. They were in foreign territory. 
and they were temporary residents in a foreign place. Listen, I said a moment ago that what Peter writes here doesn't just apply to an audience 2,000 years ago, but it applies to us today. We are aliens. You get that? The Christian is never home in this world until we are with our Lord in heaven. You are never home here. Never. After church today, if you said... Pastor Todd, what are you going to do? I'm going to say, I'm going to go home and I'm going to turn on the TV and watch the Steelers. But in reality, I'm not going home. I think that's important for us to know in our minds and in our hearts that this world is not our home. We don't belong here. We don't. And here's the danger. This is all we see. And this is our experience. And everything that we are hoping for by faith is in the unseen places. And there's this constant tension in our hearts, our fleshly hearts, to long for what we see because we know it in our experience and to forget what is ours in the future, which is laid up in heaven. But the reality is, Jonestown isn't my home. Your address is not your home. We are pilgrims passing through on a journey to our forever home with Jesus Christ. We are aliens. Now, another thought with this idea that we are aliens is the fact that we're also strange You're strange if you love Jesus. Lean into that. In a world where we don't want to be different because people might look at us differently. We don't want to be peculiar because people might say, what is wrong with you? The reality is because of Jesus, we are different. Our affections are no no longer based on the flesh But our affections are set on the heavenly things. We have a new nature. We live with a new heart. And we have a new righteousness. We're different than the world around us. That doesn't mean that we act like we're superior. But it means that we don't belong here And we are different and we have got to stop trying to fit in. Thinking that this is all there is. Now this is a big deal to know. And it's a bigger deal to live. To remind yourself that even your best day here is only a shadow of what is yet to come. Hebrews 11.13 clues us in. In the hall of faith, as the author of Hebrews writes, all those people that believed God in different ways. This is what we read. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles. That phrase, strangers and exiles, is the same word that is used here for aliens. That they were aliens on the earth. 
that they died in faith without receiving the promises. And they considered themselves on this move in this world that they found themselves in as people that don't belong. Who are some of those people? Well, like Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David and the judges. Like all the people of the Old Testament that lived in faith. Like this isn't just a New Testament concept, but people that have a faith in God who are united to Him in fellowship because they believe Him. Live in such a way that they know they're not home yet. When you live this world, when you live in this world, knowing that you're not home yet, it will drastically change the way you prioritize your time. Because then you have to ask the question. I know I'm not home yet, so what do I do until I get home? How should I be living until I get home? What is of the greatest concern until I find myself in the presence of Jesus? Now, these specific aliens were scattered. This specific word, scattered, is the Greek word diaspora. It was used in the time of Peter to explain or describe a group of people that were dispersed or scattered. In fact, they were called the dysphoria. And that referred to the Jewish people who in the Old Testament, based on the judgment of God, were kicked out of their land and scattered in the known world. And then a few of them came back during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, But the the overall majority of Jewish people lived outside of Israel. And those people were called the dysphoria. But Peter isn't writing to those people. He would have used a definite article, which we would translate as the, if he was referring to the angels, I mean the aliens who were um, scattered throughout the dysphoria. He doesn't say that. In fact, the rest of the book of First Peter identifies that he's writing to Gentile Christians because Peter continues to exhort these aliens that are scattered to keep pressing on and not be like the Gentiles, meaning they came from that experience. So these aliens lived in a specific region. So... The specific region that is mentioned is on the right-hand side of the screen here. Um, Hopefully you can read some of the names there, but Peter identifies them as from Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Those are all the regions here in this area of what was called Asia Minor. Asia Minor is where modern-day Turkey is. Uh, These believers lived in the northern regions. In fact, we know from the book of Acts that Paul ministered on his first missionary journey to primarily Asia Minor, but he only ministered to the southern portion of Asia Minor. So these believers became followers of Jesus as a result of the gospel being planted in this region, but they didn't have direct contact with the, the apostles. Peter heard of their experience and wrote a letter to encourage them. In fact... 1 Peter 5.12 forms the purpose statement. And this is where I kind of got the sermon title or, or the series title for this letter. And in 1 Peter 5.12, we read, Through Silvanius, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 
the purpose statement of 1 Peter to the scattered aliens who are suffering persecution for believing in Jesus is that you stand firm in the grace of God. This whole letter, everything Peter that is going to say, all the exhortations about who we are in Christ and how God wants us to live is to stand firm in the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, I say to you today as a people that do not belong to this place, who is facing the weight and the waves and the storm of an ungodly world beating against you all the time. Stand firm in the grace of God. Hold fast. Hold fast in the grace of Jesus Christ. And then Peter takes time in the remaining verses to remind these aliens and us, just how loved and special they are. He does this simply by saying that these believers are those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Peter went there already. Like, seriously, I'm I'm reading this letter. Pastor Dustin and I were talking about this this week. And I said, hey, do you want to preach this passage? Why? Because right off the bat, the first doctrinal truth that Peter mentions that ties them into a believer into their relationship with, with God is election. The doctrine of election. This word chosen that is used here is the Greek word eklektois which is where we get the word election in the English. If you've been around the church for at least the last 30 years, you know that this, this word, this phrase, this theological term is a hot-button issue in churches. Churches have divided over their understanding of what this teaches. I'm not going to spend forever this morning talking about all the arguments in favor of biblical election. I could, but they're there. Paul taught about it. Peter taught about it. John taught about it. Jesus Christ taught about the doctrine of election. Jesus said that those who come to faith are a people that do not choose him, but he chooses them. The text here indicates that this word chosen is an adjective. It's a descriptive word. And it modifies the noun alien. So we have a break in the English text because it says, you know, to the scattered aliens from these regions who are chosen. But in the original, it reads to the aliens chosen in these regions. So Peter is saying that these people that do not belong here have been chosen by God. In fact, this word chosen is in the passive tense. What that means is that they were chosen by an outside electing agent. And that's God the Father himself, as verse 2 indicates. They were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, what does that mean? 
Some people have tried to define they were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by saying that God looked down the corridor of time in his foreknowledge and saw the faith that people would have and he chose them. So he just basically chose everyone that would believe. But there is something wrong with that understanding. That if God's choice was based on what he knew that we would do, then our relationship with Jesus is based on what we do. Do you see that? Then it's based on works. It's based on our acknowledgement. God did not choose based on seeing that we would make good Christians. The scriptures are clear that salvation is a gift and initiated through faith, not by works. God's foreknowledge is rooted in his eternal will and purposes. God's foreknowledge has an element always of determinism, meaning what God wills will be accomplished. The outcome of his foreknowledge will come to place because of his sovereign will. Divine foreknowledge involves God's favorable regard for people as part of his deliberate plans and purposes. That God has deliberate plans and purposes for his family. And to make that happen, he has chosen people to be a part of his family. His affectionate regard for them is not due to what they are in themselves, but only be understood as a manifestation of his gracious character as God the Father. In reality, what Peter is saying is who you are, where you are is based on a loving act of your heavenly father. That we bring nothing to the table. We are dead. And but God, he makes us alive. Peter brings this up right now so early in this letter to point as a point to remind the believers who are scattered and persecuted to know that their father loves them and has appointed them to be a part of his family. And that would be an important reality. Why? Because what they're facing in the trials and persecutions and the sufferings of being a people that live in a region where they're not around people that love Jesus and are cheering them on in their faith. They're around a people that are persecuting them. That what what Peter is saying is you are always under God's sovereign care and you're going to make it home because what God starts, God will finish. He who began a good work in you will be completed in the day of Jesus Christ. God's not going to let you go. You're not just floating around until you get to heaven. God is with you every step of your journey. The reason why election is such a hot button term today and often avoided because we think that God's choice removes our responsibility to believing and responding to the gospel, but it doesn't. God's sovereign choice and our response of faith are two sides of the same coin in salvation. God chooses from his perspective 
We respond by faith from our perspective. And somehow in this great mystery, it all works together. I don't have all the answers on the doctrine of election. You could ask me about it and say, well, what do you do in this situation? How about this? Some things we just leave in the grand mystery of God because his ways are higher than our ways. We know what we know because we know what the scriptures say. But when they're silent, we have to let them remain silent. But here's the thing. This theology is a hot button issue today because we make it a hot button issue. For like 1900 years, the church did not debate or fight or argue or divide over the doctrine of election. Again, we think we're getting smarter, but we're not really getting smarter. The doctrine of election is always used in the New Testament to convey something far greater than a controversial doctrine. It was always used to convey the loving action of God towards us. That's why it's there. To show us just how much God loves us, that he chose us to be a part of his family. Election is a family truth intended to foster the welfare of believers. The apostles do not attempt to settle the seemingly incapable um, sides of election when they teach it. Like, okay, where do we fit into this whole plan? No, they don't settle those things. They just teach it. They teach us by their silence and their proper attitude of the Christian when it comes to this difficult doctrine. We rest in the Lord with humble, childlike confidence in his love and wisdom. Now, these believers in us were chosen by God for a reason. Peter says, by the sanctifying work of the spirit. You were chosen by God, the father. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. What does that mean? It just means this. The Holy Spirit is active in every person that is chosen, sanctifying them, setting them apart into holiness, progressive holiness, progressive sanctification. Meaning when you become a Christian and enter the family, God's Spirit is at work in you to help you to grow, to mature, to become more like Jesus. That God isn't satisfied in leaving you where you came from, but His Spirit is at work in you, changing you, making you more like his son. Why? So that you would obey Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. We're not saved to be Jesus's buddy. We are saved to obey our Lord. We obey him. And that word obedience is not a fun word in this contemporary culture. I don't think in any culture, but this word obey It's not a favorite thing, right? We want to be friends with God without trusting and believing and following God. We want him to be our buddy, but we don't want to have to do any of the things that God requires for what it means to be in a relationship with him. And I'm not just saying we, meaning everyone in this room, but in a world that wants to have all of the benefits of heaven. But they don't want to do anything of what it means to follow Jesus. That does not exist in the Christian life. Those are not compatible understandings. To be in the relationship with God the Father who chooses, sanctified by God the Spirit who's working your faith out in your life for the purpose of obeying Jesus Christ. 
means that God holistically wants to transform us to be a people that truly live as aliens in a world that does not know him. As a Christian, God the Father has called you to mature you through the power of his spirit, which is at work in you so that you will live out the commands and instructions of Jesus Christ. Another thing that you can see in verse 2 very clearly is that Peter undergirded the faith of the aliens that are scattered by portraying the entire Godhead active in their life. God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. Another result of God's calling and the Spirit sanctifying is that we are sprinkled with His blood. Peter finishes that, that great truth up and says to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. The blood of Jesus. That when you were inaugurated into this relationship with Jesus, His blood was sprinkled over you. Now what does that mean? Well, sprinkling conveys a unique moment that takes us back to Exodus 24. And you can check this out yourself, but in Exodus 24, Moses was up on the mountain receiving the commandments of God. Moses comes down off the mountain with the commandments of God. And it wasn't just the tablets, right? Moses is on the mountain mediating the relationship that God is having with his people. And as they set up this relationship where God says, you are my people. And the people say, you are our God. Moses came off the mountain and they sacrificed an oxen and he took half of the blood and he sprinkled it over all the people of Israel. And it had inaugurated, it began the covenant relationship that God had with his people. That this relationship began with blood. And the blood covered them. And for us in the New Testament age, we know that there was blood that was shed. On a cross 2,000 years ago. And as Jesus died on the cross for our sins, his blood was poured out to not only cover our sins, but we are sprinkled by faith in him, in his blood, as we are brought into a new relationship with God. We are under the new covenant, the new promise. What is the new covenant? Well, in Jeremiah 31, the prophet Jeremiah, hundreds of years before Jesus ever stepped on the earth, said that God would write his law, not on tablets of stone, but on our hearts. And that God would put his spirit in us, which wasn't in us before. And that God would make a promise that we would be his people. We are united to God in a new relationship with a new promise. We are his people and he is our God through the blood of his son. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. May God's grace and his peace literally be multiplied. Exponential grace and peace. May it never run out in your life, brothers and sisters, that God's grace and peace would be known over you no matter what you face in life. Brothers and sisters, even to this point, as you make your way through this world, knowing it's not your home, know just how loved you are by God, who chose you according to his determined will, who is sanctifying you through the Holy Spirit. So that you will obey Jesus Christ, who brought you into a new relationship with God. You've gotten good mail today. Oh, man, it's good. 
I don't know what I would do without truths like this. That we belong to another. That our home is not here. I am grateful to God that this is not my home. That there is somewhere far better. Why is it far better? Not because it's just the place without crying and disease and sickness and sin and all those things. I mean, that's certainly good. You know why heaven is better? Because Jesus is there. Our God is there. Along the way, the pain and trials we face here are promised to always be met with God's presence because He loves us far more than we could ever know. So I say to you, as we begin this journey together in 1 Peter, to hold fast. Stand firm, aliens. Let's pray.